Hey everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of the Weird Tales Podcast. My name is Tycho Alhambra. Thank you for listening. If this is your first episode, welcome. We're happy to have you regardless of your race, sexual orientation, or gender identity. The Weird Tales Podcast believes that trans rights are human rights, that abortion is health care, and that black lives matter, and we stand in solidarity with you all. Transcripts of the show, as well as links to institutions fighting for reproductive justice, can all be found in the show notes. Hello to new patron Michaela. Thank you so much for your support. I very much appreciate it, and I'm happy to have you join the team. As I mentioned last week, this story delves into some pretty bad racism, so be warned about that. My stance on the issue is that racism is wrong regardless of when it occurs or what society's views on it are at the time I screwed that whole thing up. My stance on the issue is that racism is wrong regardless of when it occurs or what society's views on it at the time were. I also believe that to edit it out, ignore it, not call it out, etc., is to do an injustice to those who have and continue to suffer under it, and those who have and continue to fight against it. Racism is wrong at any time, in any conditions, and if you are offended by that notion, perhaps you have some things in your psychology you need to examine. Alrighty. 5. 5. A sudden shutting off of the waves left Carter in a chilling and awesome silence full of the spirit of desolation. On every hand pressed the illimitable vastness of the void, yet the seeker knew that the being was still there. After a moment he thought of words whose mental substance he flung into the abyss. After a moment he thought of words whose mental substance he flung into the abyss. I accept. I will not retreat. The waves surged forth again, and Carter knew that the being had heard. <clears throat> and now there poured from that limitless mind a flood of knowledge and explanation which opened new vistas to the seeker and prepared him for such a grasp of the cosmos as he had, and prepared him for such a grasp of the cosmos as he had never hoped to po- possess and prepared him for such a grasp of the cosmos as he had never hoped to possess. He was told how childish and limited is the notion of a tridimensional world, and what an infinity of directions there are besides the known directions of up, down, forward, backward, right, left. He was shown the smallness and tinsel emptiness of the little gods of Earth, with their petty human interests and connections, their hatreds, rages, loves, and vanities, their craving for praise and sacrifice, and their demands for faith contrary to reason and nature. While most of the impressions translated themselves to Carter as words, there were others to which other senses gave interpretation. Perhaps with eyes and perhaps with imagination, he perceived that he was in a region of dimensions beyond those conceivable to the eye and brain of man. He saw now in the brooding shadows of that which had been first a vortex of power and then an illimitable void, a sweep of creation that dizzied his senses. From some inconceivable vantage point he looked upon prodigious forms whose multiple extensions transcended any conception of being, size, and boundaries which his mind had hitherto been able to hold, despite a lifetime of cryptical study. He began to understand dimly why there could exist at the same time the little boy Randolph Carter in the Arkham farmhouse in 1883, the misty form on the vaguely hexagonal pillar beyond the first gate, <clears throat> the fragment now facing the presence in the limitless abyss and all the other carters his fancy or perception envisaged. 
Then the waves increased in strength and sought to improve his understanding, reconciling him to the multiform entity of which his present fragment was an infant. Reconcil reconciling him to the multiform entity of which his present fragment was an infinitesimal part. They told him that every figure of space is but the result of the intersection by a plane of some corresponding figure of one more dimension, as a square is cut from a cube or a circle from a sphere. The cube and sphere of three dimensions are thus cut from corresponding forms of four dimensions that men know only through guesses and dreams, and these in turn are cut from forms of five dimensions, and so on up to the dizzy and reachless heights of archetypal infinity. The world of men and of the gods of men is merely an infinitesimal phase of an infinitesimal thing, the three-dimensional phase of that small wholeness reached by the first... The three-dimensional phase of that small wholeness reached by the first gate, where Umratawil dictates dreams to the ancient ones. Though men hail it as reality and brand thoughts of its many-dimensioned original as unreality, it is, in truth, the very opposite. That which we call substance and reality is shadow and illusion, and that which we call shadow and illusion is substance and reality. Time, the waves went on, is motionless and without beginning or end. That it has motion and is the cause of change is an illusion. Indeed, it is itself really an illusion, for except to the narrow sight of beings in limited dimensions, there are no such things as past, present, and future. Men think of time only because of what they call change, yet that too is illusion. All that was and is and is to be exists simultaneously. These revelations came with a godlike solemnity which left Carter unable to doubt. Even though they lay beyond his comprehension, he felt that they must be true in the light of that final cosmic reality which belies all local perspectives and narrow partial views, and he was familiar enough with profound speculations to be free from the bondage of local and partial conceptions. Had his whole quest not been based upon a faith in the unreality of the local and partial? After an impressive pause, the waves continued, saying that what the denizens of few-dimension zones call change is merely a function of their consciousness, which views the external world from various cosmic angles. As the shapes produced by the cutting of a cone seem to vary with the angles of cutting, being circle, ellipse, parabola, or hyperbola according to that angle, yet without any change in the cone itself, so do the local aspects of an unchanged and endless reality seem to change with the cosmic angle of regarding. To this variety of angles of consciousness, the feeble beings of the inner world are slaves, since with rare exceptions they cannot learn to control them. Only a few students of forbidden things have gained inklings of this control, and have thereby conquered time and change. But the entities outside the gates command all angles and view the myriad parts of the cosmos in terms of fragmentary, change-involving perspective or of the changeless totality beyond perspective in accordance with their will. As the waves paused again, Carter began to comprehend vaguely and terrifiedly the ultimate background of that riddle of lost individuality which had at first so horrified him. His intuition pieced together the fragments of revelation and brought him closer and closer to a grasp of the secret. He understood that much of the frightful revelation would have come upon him, splitting up his ego amongst myriads of earthly counterparts inside the first gate, had not the magic of Umrat Tawil kept it from him in order that he might use the silver key with precision for the ultimate gate's opening. 
Anxious for clearer knowledge, he sent out waves of thought, asking more of the exact relationship between his various facets. The fragment now beyond the ultimate gate, the fragment still on the quasi-hexagonal pedestal beyond the first gate, the boy of 1883, the man of 1928, the various ancestral beings who had formed his heritage in the bulwark of his ego, and the nameless denizens of the other aeons and other worlds which that first hideous flash of ultimate perception had identified with him. Slowly, the waves of the being surged out in reply, trying to make plain what was almost beyond the reach of an earthly mind. All descended lines of beings of the finite dimensions continued the waves, and all stages of growth in each one of these beings are merely manifestations of one archetypal and eternal being in the space outside dimensions. Each local being, son, father, grandfather, and so on, and each stage of individual being, infant, child, boy, young man, old man, is merely one of the infinite phases of that same archetypal and eternal being caused by a variation in the angle of the consciousness plane which cuts it. Randolph Carter, at all ages. Randolph Carter and all his ancestors, both human and pre-human, terrestrial and pre-terrestrial. All these were only phases of one ultimate, eternal Carter outside space and time. Phantom projections differentiated only by the angle at which the plane of consciousness happened to cut the eternal archetype in each case. A slight change of angle could turn the student of today into the child of yesterday, could turn Randolph Carter into that wizard Edmund Carter who fled from Salem to the hills beyond Arkham in 1692, or that Pickman Carter who, in the year 2169, would use strange means in repelling the Mongol hordes from Australia could turn a human Carter into one of those earlier entities which had dwelt in primordial hyperborea and worshipped black plastic Sithagua after flying down from Kithanil, the double planet that once revolved around Arcturus, could turn a terrestrial Carter to a remotely ancestral and doubtfully shaped dweller on Kithanil itself, or a still remoter creature of transgalactic Shoni, or a four-dimensioned gaseous consciousness in an older space-time continuum, or a vegetable brain of the future on a dark radioactive comet of inconceivable or I almost got through that without... Ah. It was like the last word. It was literally the last word. Or a vegetable... Or a vegetable brain of the future on a dark radioactive comet of inconceivable orbit. And so on, in the endless cosmic circle. The archetypes, throbbed the waves, are the people of the ultimate abyss, formless, ineffable, and guessed at only by rare dreamers on the low-dimensioned worlds. Chief among such was this informing being itself, which indeed was Carter's own archetype. The gluttless zeal of Carter and all his forebears for forbidden cosmic secrets was a natural result of derivation from the supreme archetype. On every world... All great wizards, all great thinkers, all great artists are facets of it. Almost stunned with awe and with a kind of terrifying delight, Randolph Carter's consciousness did homage to that transcendent entity from which it was derived. As the waves paused again, he pondered in the mighty silence, thinking of strange tributes, stranger questions, and still stranger requests. Curious concepts flowed conflictingly through a brain dazed with unaccustomed vistas and unforeseen disclosures. 
<sighs> it occurred to him that if those disclosures were literally true, he might bodily visit... It occurred to him that if those disclosures were literally true, he might bodily visit all those infinitely distant ages and parts of the universe which he had hitherto known only in dreams. Could he but command the magic to change the angle of the subconscious plane? And did not the silver key supply that magic? Had it not first changed him from a man in 1928 to a boy in 1883 and then to something quite outside time? Oddly, despite his present apparent absence of body, he knew that the key was still with him. While the silence still lasted, Randolph Carter radiated forth the thoughts and questions which assailed him. He knew that in this ultimate abyss he was equidistant from every facet of his archetype, human or non-human, earthly or extra-earthly, galactic or transgalactic, and his curiosity regarding the other phases of his being, especially those phases which were farthest from an earthly 1928 in time and space, or which had most persistently haunted his dreams throughout life, was at fever heat. He felt that his archetypal entity could at will send him bodily to any of these phases of bygone and distant life by changing his consciousness plane, and despite the marvels he had undergone, he burned for the further marvels of walking in the flesh through those grotesque and incredible scenes which visions of the night had fragmentarily brought him. Without, dis without definite intention, he was asking the presence for access to a dim, fantastic world whose five multicolored suns, alien constellations, dizzy black crags, clawed, tapir-snouted denizens, bizarre metal towers, unexplained tunnels, and cryptical floating cylinders had intruded again and again upon his slumbers. That world, he felt vaguely, was in all the conceivable cosmos the one most freely in touch with others, and he longed to explore the vistas whose beginnings he had glimpsed and to embark through space to those still remoter worlds with which the clawed, snouted denizens trafficked. There was no time for fear, as at all crises of his strange life, sheer cosmic curiosity triumphed over everything else. When the waves resumed their awesome pulsing, Carter knew that his terrible request was granted. The being was telling him of the nighted gulfs through which he would have to pass, of the unknown quintuple star in an unsuspected galaxy around which the alien world revolved, and of the burrowing inner horrors against which the clawed-snouted race of that world perpetually fought. It told him, too, of how the angle of his personal consciousness plane and the angle of his consciousness plane regarding the space-time elements of the sought-for world <clears throat> would have to be tilted simultaneously in order to restore to that world would have to be tilted simultaneously in order to restore to that world the Carter facet which had dwelt there. The presence warned him to be sure of his symbols if he wished ever to return from the remote and alien world he had chosen, and he radiated back an impatient affirmation, confident that the silver key, which he felt was with him and which he knew had tilted both world and personal planes in throwing him back to 1883, contained those symbols which were meant. And now the being, grasping his impatience, signified its readiness to accomplish the monstrous precipitation. The waves abruptly ceased, and there the waves abruptly ceased, and there supervened a momentary stillness tense with nameless and dreadful expectancy. 
Then, without warning, came a whirring and drumming that swelled to a terrific thundering. Once again, Carter felt himself the focal point of an intense concentration of energy, which smote and hammered and seared unbearably in the now-familiar alien rhythm of outer space, and which he could not classify as either the blasting heat of a blazing star or the all-petrifying cold of the ultimate abyss. Bands and rays of color utterly foreign to any spectrum of our universe played and wove and interlaced before him, and he was conscious of a frightful velocity of motion. He caught one fleeting glimpse of a figure sitting alone upon a cloudy throne more hexagonal than otherwise. 6. As the Hindu paused in his story, he saw that Demarigny and Phillips were watching him absorbedly. Aspinwall pretended to ignore the narrative and kept his eyes ostentatiously on the papers before him. The alien-rhythmed ticking of the coffin-shaped clock took on a new and portentous meaning, while the fumes from the choked, neglected tripods wove themselves into fantastic and inexplicable shapes and formed disturbing combinations with the grotesque figures of the, the draft-swayed tapestries. The old negro who attended them was gone. Perhaps some growing tension had frightened him out of the house. An almost apologetic hesitancy hampered the speaker as he resumed in his oddly labored yet idiomatic voice. "'You have found these things of the abyss hard to believe.' he said, but you will find the tangible and material things ahead still harder. That is the way of our minds. Marvels are doubly incredible when brought into three dimensions from the vague regions of possible dream. I shall not try to tell you much. That would be another and very different story. I will tell you, I will tell only what you absolutely have to know. Carter, after that final vortex of alien and polychromatic rhythm, had found himself in what for a moment he thought was his old insistent dream. He was, as many a night before, walking amidst throngs of clawed, snouted beings through the streets of a labyrinth of inexplicably fashioned metal under a blaze of diverse solar color, and as he looked down, he saw that his body was like those of the others, rugose, partly squamous, and curiously articulated in a fashion mainly insect-like, yet not without a caricaturish resemblance to the human outline. The silver key was still in his grasp, though held by a noxious-looking claw. In another moment the dream sense vanished, and he felt rather as one just awakened from a dream. The ultimate abyss, the being, an entity of absurd outlandish race called Randolph Carter, on a world of the future not yet born, some of these things were parts of the persistent recurrent dreams of the wizard Zakaba on the planet Yadith. They were too persistent. They interfered with his duties in weaving spells to keep the frightful bowls in their burrows and became mixed up with his recollections of the myriad real worlds he had visited in his light beam envelope. And now they had become quasi-real as never before. This heavy material silver key in his right upper claw, exact image of one he had dreamt about, meant no good. He must rest and reflect and consult the tablets of Ning for advice on what to do. Climbing a metal wall, climbing a metal wall in a lane off the main concourse, he entered his apartment and approached the rack of tablets. Seven day fractions later, Zakaba squatted on his prism in awe and half despair, for the truth had opened up a new and conflicting set of memories. Never more could he know the peace of being one entity. For all time and space, he was two. 
Zakaba, the wizard of Yadith, disgusted with the thought of the repellent earth mammal Carter that he was to be and had been, and Randolph Carter of Boston on the earth, shivering with fright at the clawed, snouted thing which he had once been and had become again. The time unit spent on Yadith, croaked the Swami, whose labored voice was beginning to show signs of fatigue, made a tale in themselves which could not be related in brief compass. There were trips to Shoni and Mithura and Kath, and other worlds in the twenty-eight galaxies accessible to the light-beam envelopes of the creatures of Yadith, and trips back and forth through aeons of time with the aid of the Silver Key and various other symbols known to Yadith's wizards. There were hideous struggles with the bleached viscous bowls and the primal tunnels that honeycombed the planet. There were odd sessions in libraries amongst the massed lore of ten thousand worlds living and dead. There were tense conferences with other... There were tense conferences with other minds of Yadith, including that of the arch-ancient Buo. Zakaba could... Zakaba told no one of what had befallen... Zakaba told no one of what had befallen his personality, but when the Randolph Carter facet was uppermost, he would study furiously every possible means of returning to the earth and to human form and would desperately practice human speech with the buzzing alien throat organ so ill adapted to it. The Carter facet had soon learned with horror that the silver key was unable to affect his return to human form. It was, as he deduced too late from things he remembered, things he dreamed, and things he inferred from the lore of Yadith, a product of Hyperborea on Earth, with power over the personal consciousness angles of human beings alone. It could, however, change the planetary angle and send the user at will through time in an unchanged body. There had been an added spell which gave it limitless powers it otherwise lacked, but this, too, was a human discovery, peculiar to a spatially unreachable region, and not to be duplicated by the wizards of Yadith. It had been written on the undecipherable parchment. It had been written on the undecipherable parchment in the hideously carven box with the silver key, and Carter bitterly lamented that he had left it behind. The now inaccessible being of the abyss had warned him to be sure of his symbols, and had doubtless thought he lacked nothing. As time wore on, he strove harder and harder to utilize the monstrous lore of Yadith in finding a way back to the abyss and the omnipotent entity. With his new knowledge he could have done much towards reading the cryptic parchment, but that power, under present conditions, was merely ironic. There were times, however, when the Zakaba faucet there were times, however, when the Zakaba facet was uppermost, and when he strove to erase the conflicting Carter memories which troubled him. Thus long spaces of time wore on ages longer than the brain of man could grasp since the beings of Yadith die only after prolonged cycles. After many hundred revolutions, the Carter facet seemed to gain on the Zakaba facet and would spend vast periods calculating the distance of Yadith in space and time from the human earth that was to be. The figures were staggering. Aeons of light years beyond counting, but the immemorial lore of Yadith filled Carter to grasp such things. He cultivated the power of dreaming himself momentarily earthward and learned many things about our planet that he had never known before. But he could not dream the needed formula on the missing parchment. Then, at last, he conceived a wild plan of escape from Yadith, which began when he found a drug that would keep his Zakaba facet always dormant, yet without dissolution of the knowledge and memories of Zakaba. He thought that his calculations would let him perform a voyage with a light-wave envelope such as no being of Yadith had ever performed, 
a bodily voyage through nameless aeons and across incredible galactic reaches to the solar system and the Earth itself. Once on Earth, though in the body of a clawed, snouted thing, he might be able somehow to find and finish deciphering the strangely, the strangely hieroglyphed parchment he had left in the car at Arkham, and with its aid and the keys resume his normal terrestrial semblance. He was not blind to the perils of the attempt. He knew that when he had brought the planet angle to the right aeon, a thing impossible to do while hurtling through space, Yadith would be a dead world dominated by triumphant bowls, and that his escape in the light wave and and that his escape in the light wave envelope would be a matter of grave doubt. Likewise was he aware of how he must achieve suspended animation in the manner of an adept to endure the aeon-long flight through fathomless abysses. He knew, too, that, assuming his voyage succeeded, he must immunize himself to the bacterial and other earthly conditions hostile to a body from Yadith. Furthermore, he must provide a way of feigning human shape on earth until he might recover and decipher the parchment and resume that shape in truth. Otherwise, he would probably be discovered and destroyed by the people in horror. Otherwise, he would probably be discovered and destroyed by the people in horror as a thing that should not be. And there must be some gold, luckily obtained on Yadith, to tide him over that period of quest. Slowly, Carter's plans went forward. He provided a light-wave envelope of abnormal toughness, able to stand both the prodigious time transition and the unexampled flight through space. He tested all his calculations and sent forth his earthward dreams again and again, bringing them as close as possible to 1928. He practiced suspended animation with marvelous success. He discovered just the bacterial agent he needed and worked out the varying gravity stress to which he must become used. He artfully fashioned a waxen mask and loose costume enabling him to pass among men as a human being of a sort and devised a doubly potent spell with which to hold back the bowls at the moment of his starting form. I think that's supposed to be from. Oh, it is from, and I'm just an idiot. <sighs> and devised a doubly potent spell with which to hold back the bowls at the moment of his starting from the black, dead Yadith of the inconceivable future. He took care, too, to assemble a large supply of the drugs unobtainable on Earth, which would keep his Zakaba facet in abeyance till he might shed the Yadith body, nor did he neglect a small store of gold for earthly use. The starting day was a time of doubt and apprehension. Carter climbed up to his envelope platform on the pretext of sailing for the triple star Nithen and crawled into the sheath of shining metal. He had just room to perform the ritual of the silver key, and as he did so, he slowly started the levitation of his envelope. There was an appalling seething and darkening of the day and a hideous racking of pain. The cosmos seemed to reel irresponsibly and the other constellations danced in a black sky. All at once, Carter felt a new equilibrium. The cold of interstellar gulfs gnawed at the outside of his envelope, and he could see that he floated free in space, the metal building from which he had started having decayed ages before. Below him, the ground was festering with gigantic bowls, and even as he looked, one reared up several hundred feet and leveled a bleached, viscous end at him. But his spells were effective, and in another moment, he was falling away from Yadith unharmed.
7. In that bizarre room in New Orleans from which the old black servant had instinctively fled, the odd voice of Swami Chandraputra grew hoarser still. Gentlemen, he continued, I will not ask you to believe these things until I have shown you special proof. Accept it then as a myth when I tell you of the thousands of light years, thousands of years of time, and uncounted billions of miles that Randolph Carter hurtled through space as a nameless alien entity in a thin envelope of electron-activated metal. He timed his period of suspended animation with utmost care, planning to have it end only a few years before the time of landing on the Earth in or near 1928. He will never forget that awakening. Remember, gentlemen, that before that aeon-long sleep, he had lived consciously for thousands of terrestrial years amidst the alien and horrible wonders of Yadith. There was a hideous gnawing of cold, a cessation of menacing dreams, and a glance through the eye plates of the envelope. Stars, clusters, nebulae on every hand, and at last their outlines bore some kinship to the constellation of Earth that he knew. Some day his descent into the solar system may be told. He saw Kynarth and Yuggoth on the rim, passed close to Neptune, and glimpsed the hellish white fungi that spotted learned an untellable secret from the close-glimpsed mists of Jupiter, and saw the horror on one of the satellites, and gazed at the cyclopean ruins that sprawl over Mars's ruddy disk. When the Earth drew near, he saw it as a thin crescent which swelled alarmingly in size. He slackened speed, though his sensation of homecoming made him wish to lose not a moment. I will not try to tell you of those sensations as I learned them from Carter. I will not try to tell you of those sensations as I learned them from Carter. Well, toward the last, Carter hovered about in the Earth's upper air, waiting till daylight came over the Western Hemisphere. He wanted to land where he had left, near the snake den in the hills behind Arkham. If any of you have been away from home long, and I know one of you has, I leave it to you how the sight of New England's rolling hills and great elms and gnarled orchards and ancient stone walls must have affected him. He came down at dawn in the lower meadow he came down at dawn in the lower meadow of the old Carter place and was thankful for the silence and solitude. It was autumn as when he had left, and the smell of the hills was balm to his soul. He managed to drag the metal envelope up the slope of the timber lot into the snake den, though it would not go through the weed choked fissure to the inner cave. It was there also that he covered his alien body with the human clothing and waxen mask which would be necessary. He kept the envelope here for over a year till certain circumstances made a new hiding place necessary. He walked to Arkham, incidentally practicing the management of his body in human posture and against terrestrial gravity, and got his gold changed to money at a bank. He also made some inquiries, posing as a foreigner ignorant of much English, and found that the year was 1930, only two years after the goal he had aimed at. Of course, his position was horrible— Unable to assert his identity, forced to live on guard every moment with certain difficulties regarding food and with a need to conserve the alien drug which kept his Zakaba facet dormant, he felt that he must act as quickly as possible. Going to Boston and taking a room in the decaying West End where he could live cheaply and inconspicuously, he at once established inquiries concerning Randolph Carter's estates and effects. It was then that he learned how anxious Mr. Aspinwall here was to have the estate divided, and how valiantly Mr. de Marigny and Mr. Phillips strove to keep it intact. The Hindu bowed, 
though no expression crossed his dark, tranquil, and thickly bearded face. Indirectly, he continued, Carter secured a good copy of the missing parchment and began work on its deciphering. I am glad to say that I was able to help in all this, for he appealed to me quite early, and through me came in touch with other mystics throughout the world. I went to live with him in Boston, a wretched place in Chambers Street. As for the parchment, I am pleased to help Mr. de Marigny in his perplexity. To him, let me say, to him, let me say that the language of those hieroglyphics is not Nikal, but Rilean, which has, which was brought to earth by the spawn of Cthulhu countless cycles ago. It is, of course, a translation. There was a there was an Hyperborean language. There was an Hyperborean original millions of years earlier in the primal tongue of Soth Yo. There was more to decipher than Carter had looked for, but at no time did he give up hope. Early this year he made great strides through a book he imported from Nepal. There is no question but that he will win before long. Unfortunately, however, one handicap has developed. The exhaustion of the alien drug which keeps the Zakaba facet dormant. This is not, however, as great a calamity as was feared. Carter's personality is gaining in the body, and when Zakaba comes uppermost, for shorter and shorter periods, and now only when evoked by some unusual excitement, he is generally too dazed to undo any of Carter's work. He cannot find the metal envelope that would take him back to Yadith, for although he almost did once, Carter hid it anew at a time when the Zakaba facet was wholly latent. All the harm he has done is to frighten a few people and create certain nightmare rumors among the Poles and Lithuanians of Boston's West End. So far, he has never injured the careful disguise prepared by the Carter facet, though he sometimes throws it off so that the parts have to be replaced. I have seen what lies beneath, and it is not good to see. A month ago, Carter saw the advertisement of this meeting and knew that he must act quickly to save his estate— he could not wait to decipher the parchment and resume his human form. Consequently, he deputed me to act for him, and in that capacity I am here. Gentlemen, I say to you that Randolph Carter is not dead, that he is temporarily in an anomalous condition, but that within two or three months at the outside he will be able to appear in proper form and demand the custody of his estate. I am prepared to offer proof if necessary, Therefore, I beg that you adjourn this meeting for an indefinite period. 8. De Marigny and Philip stared at the Hindu as if hypnotized, while... De Marigny and Philip stared at the Hindu as if hypnotized, while Aspinwall emitted a series of snorts and bellows. <clears throat> the old attorney's disgust had by now surged into open rage, and he pounded the table with an apoplectically veined fist. When he spoke, it was in a kind of bark. How long is this foolery to be born? I've listened an hour to this madman, this faker, and now he has the damned effrontery to say that Randolph Carter is alive, to ask us to postpone the settlement for no good reason. Why don't you throw the scoundrel out, Demarigny? Do you mean to make us all the butts of a charlatan or idiot? Demarigny quietly raised his hands and spoke softly. <clears throat> Let us think slowly and clearly. This has been a very singular tale, and there are things in it which I, as a mystic, not altogether ignorant, recognize as far from impossible. Furthermore, since 1930, I have received letters from the Swami which tally with his account. 
As he paused, old Mr. Phillips ventured a word. Swami Chandraputra spoke of proofs. I, too, recognize much that is significant in this story, and I have, myself, had many oddly corroborative letters from the Swami during the last two years. But some of these statements are very extreme. Is there not something tangible which can be shown? And last, the impassive-faced Swami replied, slowly and hoarsely, and drawing an object from the pocket of his loose coat as he spoke. While none of you have ever seen the silver key itself, Messrs. de Marigny and Phillips have seen photographs of it. Does this look familiar to you? He fumblingly laid on the table with his large, white-mittened hand a heavy key of tarnished silver, nearly five inches long, of unknown and utterly exotic workmanship, and covered from end to end with hieroglyphs of the most bizarre description. De Marigny and Phillips gasped. That's it! cried de Marigny. The camera doesn't lie. I couldn't be mistaken. But Aspinwall had already launched a reply. Fools, what does it... <clears throat> Fools, what does it prove? If that's really the key, that belonged to my cousin. It's up to this foreigner, this damn nigger, to explain how he got it. Randolph Carter vanished with the key four years ago. How do we know he wasn't robbed and murdered? He was half crazy himself and in touch with still crazier people. Look here, you nigger. Where did you get that key? Did you kill Randolph Carter? <laughs> I dropped into a, I dropped into a, just a barely Southern accent there. I'm going to leave it because I don't know if anyone else is going to catch it. But just the use of that word is just, that's all it is. The Swami's features, abnormally placid, did not change, but the remote irisless black eyes behind them blazed dangerously. He spoke with great difficulty. Please? Please, <clears throat> please control yourself, Mr. Aspinwall. There is another form of proof that I could give, but its effect upon everybody would not be pleasant. Let us be reasonable. Here are some papers, obviously written since 1930, and in the unmistakable style of Randolph Carter. He clumsily drew a long envelope from inside his loose coat and handed it to the spluttering attorney as de Marigny and Phillips watched with chaotic thoughts and a dawning feeling of supernal wonder. Of course, the handwriting is almost illegible, but remember that Randolph Carter now has no hands well adapted to forming human script. Aspinwall looked through the papers hurriedly, and was visibly perplexed, but he did not change his demeanor. The room was tense with excitement and nameless dread, and the alien rhythm of the coffin-shaped clock had an utterly diabolic sound to de Marigny and Phillips, though the lawyer seemed affected not at all. Aspinwall spoke again. These look like clever forgeries. If they aren't, they may mean that Randolph Carter has been brought under control of people with no good purpose. There's only one thing to do. Have this faker arrested. Demarigny, will you telephone for the police? Let us wait, answered their host. I do not think this case calls for the police. I have a certain idea, Mr. Aspinwall. This gen- I have a certain idea. Mr. Aspinwall, this gentleman is a mystic of real attainments. He says he is in the confidence of Randolph Carter. Will it satisfy you if he can answer certain questions which could be answered only by one in such confidence? I know Carter and can ask such questions. Let me get a book which I think will make a good test. He turned toward the door to the library, Phillips dazedly following in a kind of automatic way. Aspinwall remained where he was, studying closely the Hindu who confronted him with abnormally impassive face. 
Suddenly, as Chandraputra clumsily restored the silver key to his pocket, the lawyer emitted a guttural shout which stopped De Marigny and Phillips in their tracks. "'Hey, by God, I've got it! This rascal is in disguise! I don't believe he's an East Indian at all! That face! It isn't a face, but a mask! I guess his story put that into my head, but it's true! It never moves, and that turban and beard hide the edges! This fellow's a common crook! He isn't even a foreigner!' I've been watching his language. He's a Yankee of some sort. And look at those mittens. He knows his fingerprints could be spotted. Damn you, I'll pull that thing off. Stop! The hoarse, oddly alien voice of the Swami held a tone beyond all mere earthly fright. I told you there was another form of proof which I could give if necessary, and I warned you not to provoke me to it. This red-faced old meddler is right. I'm not really an East Indian. This face is a mask, and what it covers is not human. You others have guessed. I felt that minutes ago. It wouldn't be pleasant if I took that mask off. Let it alone, Ernest. I may as well tell you that I am Randolph Carter. No one moved. Aspinwall snorted and made vague motions. Aspinwall snorted and made vague motions. De Marigny and Phillips, across the room, watched the workings of his red face and studied the back of the turbaned figure that confronted him. The clock's abnormal ticking was hideous, and the tripod fumes and swaying aris danced a dance of death. The half-choking lawyer broke the silence. "'No, you don't, you crook! You, you, you can't scare me! You've reasons of your own for not wanting that mask off! Maybe we'd know who you are! Off with it!' As he reached forward, the Swami seized his hand with one of his own clumsily mittened members, evoking a curious cry of mixed pain and surprise. De Marigny started toward the two, but paused, confused as the pseudo, but paused, confused as the pseudo-Hindu shout of protest changed to a wholly inexplicable rattling and buzzing sound. Aspinwall's red face was furious, and with his free hand, he made another lunge at his opponent's bushy beard. This time he succeeded in getting a hold, and at his frantic tug, the whole waxen visage came loose from the turban and clung to the lawyer's apoplectic fist. As it did so, Aspinwall uttered a frightful gurgling cry, and Phillips and Demarigny saw his face convulsed with a wilder, deeper, and more hideous epilepsy of stark panic than ever they had seen on human countenance before. The pseudo-swami had meanwhile released his other hand and was standing as if dazed, making buzzing noises of a most abnormal quality. Then the turbaned figure slumped oddly into a posture scarcely human and began a curious, fascinated sort of shuffle toward the coffin-shaped clock that ticked out its cosmic and abnormal rhythm. His now uncovered face was turned away, and Demarigny and Phillips could not see what the lawyer's act had disclosed. Then their attention was turned to Aspinwall, Then their attention was turned to Aspinwall, who was sinking ponderously to the floor. The spell was broken, but when they reached the old man, he was dead. Turning quickly to the shuffling swamis receding back, De Marigny saw one of the great white mittens drop listlessly off a dangling arm. The fumes of the olibanum were thick, and all that could be glimpsed of the revealed hand was something long and black. Before the Creole could reach the retreating figure, old Mr. Phillips laid a restraining hand on his shoulder. Don't, he whispered. We don't know what we're up against. That other facet, you know, Zakaba, the Wizard of Yadith. 
The turbaned figure had now reached the abnormal clock, and the watchers saw through the dense fumes a blurred black claw fumbling with the tall hieroglyph door. The fumbling made a queer clicking sound. Then the figure entered the coffin-shaped case and pulled the door shut after it. De Marigny could no longer be restrained, but when he reached and opened the clock, it was empty. The abnormal ticking went on, beating out the dark cosmic rhythm which underlies all mystical gate openings. On the floor, the great white mitten and the dead man with a bearded mask clutched in his hand had nothing further to reveal. A year has passed, and nothing has been heard of Randolph Carter. His estate is still unsettled. The Boston address from which one Swami Chandraputra, the Boston address from which one Swami Sandraputra, Chandra Putra, the Boston address from which one Swami Chandraputra has sent. The Boston address from which one Swami Chandraputra sent inquiries to various mystics in 1930, 31, and 32 was indeed tenanted by a strange Hindu, but he left shortly before the date of the New Orleans Conference and has never been seen since. He was said to be dark, expressionless, and bearded, and his landlord thinks the swarthy mask, which was duly exhibited, looks very much like him. He was never, however, suspected of any connection with the nightmare apparitions whispered of by local Slavs. The hills behind Arkham were searched for the metal envelope, but nothing of the sort was ever found. However, a clerk in Arkham's First National Bank does recall a queer turbaned man who cashed an odd bit of gold bullion in October 1930. De Marigny and Phillips scarcely know what to make of the business. After all, what was proved? There was a story. There was a key which might have been forged from one of the pictures Carter had freely distributed in 1928. There were papers, all indecisive. There was a masked stranger, but who now living saw behind the mask? Amidst the strain and the olibanum fumes, that act of vanishing in the clock might easily have been a dual hallucination. Hindus know much of hypnotism. Reason proclaims the Swami a criminal with designs on Randolph. Reason proclaims the Swami a criminal with designs on Randolph Carter's estate. But the autopsy said that Aspinwall had died of shock. Was it rage alone which caused it? And some things in that story. In a vast room, hung with strangely figured auras and filled with olibanum fumes, Etienne Laurent de Marigny often sits, listening with vague sensations, to the abnormal rhythm of that hieroglyphed, coffin-shaped clock. And that is the end of this story. If you enjoy the show and want to help support it, please feel free to support me on Patreon, patreon.com slash Podcast. Every dollar goes back into the show and is used to support things like hosting fees, guest readers, and 24-carat diamond-encrusted gold filigreed litter boxes that our cats use. Steve Meyer, Franklin Jones, and Lucas Nicholson, thank you so much for your support. Please go and get any and all vaccinations you are eligible for and whatever accompanying boosters you can get. It will protect you, your family, and society. If you happen to see a racist or a conservative member of Congress, but I repeat myself, out and about, make their life just as miserable as possible. They don't deserve any better. And always remember that taking time for yourself and your mental health is not failing anyone or letting anyone down. That messing up is a part of life. 
take responsibility for your actions, learn from them, and rise again a better person. Don't let the failure become the destination. The most important step a person can take is always the next one. Thanks for listening, and have a great week.